0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Alex Golub, a professor of anthropology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And today we'll be talking to Patrick L. Schmidt, author of Harvard's Quixotic Pursuit of a New Science, The Rise and Fall of the Department of Social Relations, published by Roman and Littlefield in 2022. Patrick, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So we always start the podcast by learning the story of how this book came to be and what, the, what led the author to write it. And uh, you have a particularly interesting story about this because this book has been in process for a long time. So can you tell us how it was that you came to write this book?
1: Certainly, I was an undergraduate at Harvard and in my junior year, Uh, I was concentrating in uh, psychology and social relations, which was the successor department to social relations. In my junior year, i had done an independent study on the history of psychology at Harvard, uh, which I enjoyed very much. And that sort of got me acquainted with the story of social relations, which of course sort of broke away from psychology. And, one of my professors said, you know, it, it might be interesting to do uh, your honors thesis, your senior honors thesis on the history of the social relations department because many of those professors are still here and I'm sure they would be willing to be interviewed. So I thought that sounded like a lot of fun to do a, a, a thesis that was based in part on these interviews. So uh, my senior year, I... I interviewed 28 uh, faculty members, administrators, and others uh, that were familiar with the department, even critics of the department. B.F. Skinner, for example, uh, was not in the department, but he was very critical of it. And um, that's how I came to write the the book. Uh, That's how I
0: came to be interested in the topic. And so just for a background of people who aren't familiar with the book, the social relations department lasted from the mid-1940s to basically the late 1960s. And you were doing this in the in the 70s? Yeah,
1: 1977,
0: uh, fall of 1977 and sp- spring of 78. And social relations was supposed to be the great post-World War II synthesize everything, make social sciences a natural science, unify all the disciplines. It was a huge moonshot at an institution that was had all the prestige and resources it need, needed with tremendous amounts of resources from uh, the Carnegie Corporation and others. And it, and it famously was not successful. So this was when you began to study it, you must have been in mind that it was something of a a tragic department, or at least an interesting story to tell.
1: Yes. And, and the course of the professors I talked to, who were two of the founders, uh, Talcott Parsons and Henry Murray, they of course didn't, did not, you know, dwell on the failure so much. uh, But others did. And I tried to be fair that these scholars, although they didn't, they failed to create an interdisciplinary science. They nonetheless did uh, very important work in their constituent fields. It just, it just wasn't interdisciplinary for the most part. Mm-hmm.
0: And so that was in the seventies. And this book has just recently come out. So there, there must have been a gap there. Can you tell us a little bit about how the book came to be published after you originally conceived it um, as an undergraduate project?
1: Well, one of my professors and one of the uh, professors that I interviewed was the sociologist David Reisman. And he had been a member of the department from 1955 until the termination of the department in 1972. He was not on my thesis committee, but he got a hold of the thesis and read it. And he sent me a four-page, single-spaced letter encouraging me to publish it. And he said, I have, and here's a few suggestions of things that you might consider if you do. And I was graduating. And even though he was a a superstar at Harvard and a very prominent sociologist, I, I didn't do anything with it because I was going off to Washington and I came across a letter uh, uh, almost 25 years later uh, in some, in a box in my parents' home, and I was reading the letter and I was sort of just struck by uh, how wonderful it was that this professor took the time to write me, a mere undergraduate, uh, with such kind words and took the time to make these suggestions. And of course, as I was more mature, that, you know, and looking at this, I thought, wow, this I, I really should do something with this and you know, honor honor this man and get this story out there, and that's really what prompted me to do it. In addition, I had been a, I had been approached with uh, scholars asking me permission to quote from my undergraduate thesis, people that were writing things that touched on the department. So I thought there was an audience for it as well.
0: Yeah, and Reisman, for people who uh, don't know or have not heard before, was really one of the most famous um, not just academics, but Intellectuals of the 1950s. His book, *The Lonely Crowd*, was sort of one of the first indictments of uh, conformity and consumer culture in the 1950s. This would this would be like uh, I'm trying to think of what a major intellectual today w- w- who would sort of be of Reisman's position. It would be like if that person was to tell you that uh, this was worthwhile and should try to publish. I'm not sure. What an intellectual! I'm not sure who Reisman's equivalent would even be today.
1: No, I, I mean uh, you know I guess on the left there's, there's Chomsky you know others, um, uh, I don't know but uh, yeah you're right I mean he had he his book The Lonely Crowd is still the best selling sociology book of all time. Um, that, was, that was published in 1951. He was on the cover of Time magazine uh, when when he died. Um, There were articles in the New York Times about his influence on on academia, but also his books reached the general public and broke through to the general public in a way that had never really happened before for a social scientist. And he was a public intellectual. He was very involved in the anti-nuclear movement. Uh, He was consulted on higher education. That was kind of his specialty. He was consulted on higher education by... Uh, numerous presidents. So yes, he was a very, very important person, but he would take the time to talk to a student like me and encourage me. And uh, yeah, he's one of the people I dedicated the book to.
0: Yeah. And you know, one of the central theses of his book is that there's a distinction between um, being outer-directed and inner-directed, that people in American society today, by which he meant the 1950s, were forced to seek approval from society and their neighbors rather than doing things because they really wanted to do them and because they had the drive to do them. And although things have changed a lot in America since the 1950s, I feel like a lot of my students at university today, and maybe even me, they look at social media and um, likes and uh, all of these sorts of things, and they're they're still trying to be interdirected, but they have to be outer directed. So I suspect Reisman maybe still has something to teach us today. Yes, yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean, he was a, a far ranging uh, uh, intellect and um, so it would be wonderful to know what he would think of uh, all this social media explosion now.
0: Yeah. So he came along a little bit later on in the story. Maybe we should start getting into the book a little bit. Um, the book is in many ways driven by personalities because uh, Sockrell, which is, I guess, how you say social relations, um, Socral itself uh, was driven by the personalities of a small number of people who wanted to found a new department, I guess mostly because they were unhappy in the departments when they currently were. Could you tell me a little bit about this group you call the Levelers and, and how it was that they first got this idea together?
1: Sure. I mean, the levelers uh, go back to the uh, mid to late 1920s at Harvard. And the four levelers were uh, Gordon Allport, a very well-known social psychologist, uh, Henry Murray, a clinical or sort of abnormal uh, psychologist, um, Talcott Parsons, we mentioned sociologist and uh, Clyde Cluckon, uh, one of the first uh, social or cultural anthropologists. And they, they were all rising young but rising stars at Harvard in the late 1920s, early 1930s. and they were very frustrated in their existing departments, it, partly because they were interested in new new theories, uh, particularly Freud. Uh, the psychoanalytic thought had arrived at Harvard. And this was kind of a, 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 a bit of a bombshell that uh, arrived. The traditional departments didn't want to have anything to do with it, uh, particularly psychology. And this caused a lot of frustration on the part of the levelers who wanted to incorporate psychoanalytic, psychoanalytic thought in their research, with the exception of Gordon Allport, who was a little less excited about Freud um, for personal reasons. And um, but the fight about this was the most um, intense in the psychology department because it upset their traditional uh, powers in that department who were trying to make psychology more of a science because they had recently broken away from the philosophy department. And now here was this theory that was, you know, not scientific at all. And so this this caused a huge rift uh, or division in the psychology department.
0: Yeah. And it's so interesting. Today, we look at disciplines like sociology and psychology, and those are the standard disciplines. But back then, these disciplines were brand new, and they had branched off from other more established disciplines. uh, And they were still sort of fighting for their legitimacy when the levelers began wanting to innovate.
1: Yes, you're absolutely right. And that's why the uh, senior members in those departments, uh, I mean, those those departments were already fragile and young, you know, as you mentioned. And now this sort of threat came along that was going to make them look, you know, less scientific, not serious. Um, In psychology, psychology at Harvard was dominated by experimental psychologists people like B.F. Skinner, who at that time was a graduate student, they looked at people like Henry Murray and others that were using psychoanalytic thought in their work. They looked at them as mystics and cultists, Uh, didn't want them in the department, didn't want them in the discipline at all. I mean, nationwide, they tried to sort of expunge them from uh, all the uh, uh, formal organizations and associations of
0: the uh, of the discipline of psychology. And you mentioned um, Alport being a little bit more ambivalent. Is he the person who went to go see Freud? There's this wonderful tale about someone going to see Freud in, in your book. I, I wonder if you could just tell listeners that story.
1: Yes, yeah, so that that's correct. Uh, he was a newly minted PhD from Harvard, from the traditional psychology department, but he, he was interested in because he had also studied in Germany so he was interested in what we now call sort of social psychology or personality psychology and so he he was traveling through europe and he wanted to meet freud so he set up a meeting and he arrived was ushered into freud's you know room and it, there was total silence. I mean, Freud w- was not speaking to him or anything. So Alpert sort of said, well, I'm, I'm going to break the ice. I'm going to tell him about this little boy I saw on the train coming over here and the little boy and his mother, because the little boy was uh, complaining about the dirt. And he said, yes, I, I don't want to sit next to this dirty man and the seat is dirty. And and the mother was scolding the boy. And so Allport sort of thought Freud might find this interaction interesting. And after he told him about this little boy, then Freud looked at him and said, and was that little boy you? (laughs) And and of course, Allport was so flabbergasted. He said, what what is this guy reading into this little story? Like, you know, um, uh, this is just too much, you know, that they're this psycho... A- analytic thought is reading too much into just you know it's just a story it's nothing more than a story and then gallport's wife later decades later said that they think what happened is that Freud thought he was that Alport was a patient
0: Ah, yeah.
1: that it had come to see him so when he just started talking you know Freud sort of responded as if Alport had been his patient but that sort of turned Freud or Alport off a little bit. I mean, he was still interested in the interior mind, you know, and personality psychology, and he was that, and that separated him from the people like B.F. Skinner and and Edward G. Boring and and uh, uh, Carl Lashley, who was an animal psychologist. That was a big thing back in those days.
0: Um, so yeah, that's that's the story of uh, uh, Alport's meeting with uh, Freud. And I think you say in the book too that um, you know Alport wrote this off as some sort of misconnection or confusion. But then, then you interviewed some people who said like, oh yeah, Alport was obsessed with dirt, and so maybe he didn't understand that Freud was onto something or something like that.
1: Yeah, that was his his friend and colleague Henry Murray, who was another one of the levelers, and really was one of the the principal conduit for bringing uh, psychoanalytic thought into the American Academy at heart. And of course, so that made Harvard ground zero for this, this, you know, uh, this, this was what I call a sort of a civil war between the psychologists. So yeah, Henry Murray laughed about, you know, Freud and, and, and Alport's meeting. And he said, well, you know, Freud kind of nailed Alport because Alport was really a stickler for, you know, having his desk very orderly, for having everything be very clean. He didn't think much of the in- unconscious. So he, they they thought that uh, Freud kind of had Alport's number, you know, as it were.
0: Yeah. And one of the great things about this book is how many of these little details and uh, sort of personal stories you put together uh, in the course of your research. The book is very, very closely researched. Uh, and, and not just dealing with internal documents and gray literature, but also with, with some of these stories. So I think that it, this is going to make the book more appealing for readers, um, uh, regardless of their academic interest in these topics or not. I think it's just a, a good tale with a lot of very interesting personalities in it. So yeah, I thought that was great. Can you tell me a little bit uh, more? So this, this got started in the 20s, but it was really after World War II that things really started getting going. And, and you highlight the role of the war in changing sure. how people thought about research. Can, can you tell me a little bit about these people's war service and then, and then the post-war environment that would make, make Harvard receptive to the creation of the Social Relations Department? Well, uh, throughout the '30s, um, the Levelers had been
1: meeting together, you know, secretly, uh, <laughs> clandestinely, to promote their idea of creating an interdisciplinary department of merging their disciplines, because they thought there was no reason to be have these sort of arbitrary distinctions uh, between and among the disciplines. And they had made uh, a proposal to Harvard uh, to, to create a new department. And they also had written sort of a, a manifesto of sorts called uh, a common language for the area of social science. So they were already working in this direction. And then when World War II occurred, that was a real turning point because the government employed a, over a thousand uh, psychologists and other social scientists in the war effort. And they, they were studying all sorts of things. Uh, w- one of the groups, uh, the, there was a group in the uh, War Department called the Foreign Morale Analysis Division which Clyde Cluckhorn was part of. And their task was to study the morale of our enemies, the Germans and the Japanese, particularly the Japanese, because we we knew so little about the Japanese at that time. And they thought that, okay, well, uh, anthropology was well-suited to this because they could study... I think it's Margaret Mead that coined the term studying culture from a distance. And that's what Clyde Kluckholm and others were really doing. They were reading, they were were interviewing people, they were reading newspapers, everything, pulling everything together, trying to get a handle on how the Japanese would react to certain actions we would take. Um, So that was a, a huge, and it was successful. They got a lot of credit after the war for this. But they also used psychologists, in a in a number of different ways, um, they wanted to figure out well how do we sell how can we sell more war bonds you know how can we get the public to really support the war effort so they had psychologists looking at that Henry Murray one of the levelers became the chief psychologist for the Office of Strategic Services which was the precursor to this the Central Intelligence Agency and he was doing a number of things uh, the the most uh, important work he undertook was how do you break down spies like if we if we capture a spy how do you interrogate them to get information out of them what's the most effective way to break them down and conversely how do you screen uh soldiers to be that would make good spies for us that could not be broken down so that's what he was doing and that becomes relevant later uh in in the late 50s at Harvard. But um, so this was a a, a real... turn, And the other major uh, uh, factor in all this is that all these social scientists were working without disciplinary distinctions, without departmental distinctions. The, The government, the military just wanted answers and they could care less what you called yourself, what department you were in. They put them all in a room and said, give us the answers. So that really forced them... To, to, to work without boundaries. And of course the Harvard group loved this because this validated, legitimized their vision. So when they got out of the war, um, they, were, they felt very confident of their vision for an interdisciplinary department. And of course the United States was the superpower in the world and had all this money. And there were all these grandiose dreams of what the social sciences could accomplish. Uh, uh, in terms of changing the world. And so that all came together in quite, and, and Harvard was uh, really this the epicenter of this enthusiasm for remaking the social scientists, social sciences rather.
0: So they had had success in interdisciplinary work, and then they also had now resources, and so... Um, they were confident, and they were also able to talk Harvard and the administration into allowing this to happen. You know, uh, one of the one of the interesting things about your book is that you focus on the role of deans and administrators, which not all intellectual histories of academia do. But you you also then tell the story of how the deans were persuaded to to get this thing on board as well.
1: Yes, the the the, the dean played a crucial role in this because it's really the levelers plus dean uh paul buck uh who was very influential as a dean because the president of harvard uh conant was off very much involved in the war effort so as dean and provost uh paul buck was extremely influential he had and he he, was he was a history professor and a and a professor of the social sciences social sciences he had won a Pulitzer, b- very distinguished professor, and the levelers kept approaching him to convince him of the need for this department. And at first he was not enthusiastic, but he gradually began to see that this was there was something there to this interdisciplinary vision. But, and then also a more pedestrian problem that he had was that he thought some of these professors might leave if they didn't get what they wanted particularly Talcott Parsons, who by then was the biggest star of the bunch. And and he had Parsons had received a, a very generous offer from uh, uh, Northwestern to come set up a new department there. And it was a huge amount of money. Uh, and so he basically went to Paul Buck and, and, well, he wrote him. He put it on paper and he said, listen, um, I if things don't change at Harvard, You know, I'm probably going to go to Northwestern. And by the way, I'm going to let everybody know why and that it's your fault. Basically, this was pretty, pretty uh, gutsy move, uh, you know, for uh, somebody to make and uh, to flex their muscles in in the academy that way. Uh, And he didn't do it in a conversation. I mean, he he put it in a a letter. So,
0: (laughs) well, and that that's all the better for historians such as yourself who can who can find that letter and and track it down. But, but then in addition, you said that Parsons was, was one of the people that you interviewed. Is that correct? Yes. You know, I was made to read Parsons when I was young. Uh, I think perhaps some younger academics um, might not be assigned him, but they still live in his shadow in many ways. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit personally when you interviewed him? what what kind of person he was what was his what was his personality like his writing is so ascetic and, and formal it's difficult to get a, a sense of um what what the man was like uh, what his personality was like
1: well this is partly based on what other other people have have written and what other people have told me about him because I interviewed him for a couple hours he was i want, i want to say he was like 80 79 or 80. And he, I, I believe he died the following year. Um, but he was a, a, a very quiet man. I mean, he was a towering intellect. I mean, whatever you think of him or whatever a person thinks of him uh, in his contributions, he was a major force in sociology and he trained three generations of, of, of really well-known scholars today. And, but he was, he, he was a very, um, quiet, uh, person. He never responded when he was attacked by other sociologists or his theories were attacked. He never responded. And so, and his, his followers were sort of upset with him, you know, that he wouldn't engage and sort of defend his, his views. Um, uh, but he was, he was a real gentleman, a very sweet man. He, he took a lot of time with me. Um, but that was kind of his, his personality and his, his, Students, um, his PhD students, his graduate students just uh, adored him. And when he when he uh, retired, there were just a couple very big events that they put on for him, both in the United States and I think in Heidelberg, where he got his PhD.
0: It's so funny. I think we often expect academic uh, impresarios like this to have big personalities. But it sounds like he had he had quite a restrained personality. Was was he a New Englander?
1: Um, you know, I don't think he was, I want to say he was from Colorado and his father was a minister, uh, but he did, he was educated at Amherst and then he went to Heidelberg to get his PhD You know, he was fluent in German. He translated Weber's, uh, the Protestant ethic, um, and brought it into the United States, brought it into the American Academy. I mean... He was a very influential, very sophisticated, worldly guy. But um, and he had few big ideas. I mean, when he died, mm-hmm. when he died, the New York Times had a piece that was written by his colleague, Daniel Bell, another well-known Harvard sociologist. And, and Daniel Bell had the entitled the the New York Times piece, Talcott Parsons. Nobody's theories were bigger.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean
1: that really says it all. I mean, the, the, even though he had a quiet sort of personality, he he his nobody had bigger bigger ideas or theories. And he 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 swung for the fences, you know, as they say. And although he missed on, in terms of social relations, he he still had major major contributions to sociology, and is still one of the you know most important ones of the 20th century.
0: I suppose maybe that mix of ambition as well as um, tact and diplomacy that can be useful when dealing with people and in institutions as well. You talked briefly about Pyotr Sorokin, who I gather was much more flamboyant and that that kind of flamboyance sometimes doesn't doesn't work out as well. Sorokin I guess was a Russian sociologist who was, invited to shore up the sociology department, and he he and uh, Parsons uh, have several uh, sort of little uh, feuds that you describe wonderfully in your book.
1: Yes, that was uh, also another motivating factor that Parsons Parsons originally was in the economics department. That's what his degree was in from Heidelberg. And he already had this idea for a big all-encompassing uh, theory uh, of social behavior. And he, he sort of saw that economics wasn't going to do it. Economics couldn't explain human behavior the, in a way that he had in mind. So he he left to join the very small sociology department of which Sorokin was the chairman. And and Parsons was immediately frustrated because uh, Sorokin was less interested in the newer theories of Durkheim and Weber. And. Um, certainly no interest in, in Freud and Parsons just thought this was going in the wrong direction. This sort of, you know, sociology as history or philosophy was just not the, where sociology should be going. And so, although initially they got along, they started fighting and, and a huge fights until finally, um, uh, Paul Buck, uh, you know, engineered that Sorokin would, would step down and Parsons would would replace him as the first in sociology. And that was the first step to then
0: creating the Department of Social Relations. So let's talk about that. The Social Relations Department was founded, you have in the book, uh, the, the day, the hour, and the minute that it was founded, uh, because the, uh, the faculty who were voting on it wanted to get home by a certain time, and I—I uh, I don't want to. Uh, I think we'll leave that for people to read. It's—it's it's a wonderful story that starts your book, but I want to make sure we cover everything. Uh, and so let's just move on briefly to the—the—the um, the, the social relations itself when it's first created. They have tremendous resources. Tell me about those heady early days of of uh, of success and 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 growth. The first couple of years of that department.
1: Well, it It began in in uh, 1946, and as we as we already discussed, I mean, these were heady days in general, in mm-hmm. in the academy and the United States generally, post World War II, enthusiasm about changing the world, and these professors thought they were going to participate in it. Um, so, but it was a big deal to start a new department, particularly. No one else had a department like this. You had you had these four different sort of subdisciplines: social psychology, clinical psychology, cultural anthropology, and sociology. So there was um, uh, uh, just administrative challenges to doing this, but you know, people were so enthusiastic that they just said, "Well, we're we're." Um, uh, you know, go, going forward in all these different directions to set this department up. So there was huge enthusiasm, um, but it was it was difficult for the graduate students coming into this because there was no underlying theory, put putting pulling all this together. Um, so there was huge huge um, uh, excitement, but also fear. Uh, from the graduate students because they didn't quite what they didn't quite know what was expected of them, and there was a pro seminar that you know had all the different elements, different constituent disciplines represented, but there was no underlying theory that pulled it all together. So that was always a problem that was lurking, uh, you know, there in the in the background. But the huge enthusiasm for uh, changing. Changing not just the academy but the world was there, and uh, a bit of hubris, uh, as I say in the book, that they they were going to uh, you know engineer
0: such big big changes. So they had the money. They didn't, but they didn't have the theoretical unity that they were supposed to have, and they were also they weren't all in the same space. Space plays an important part in in your book, and that was one of the reasons I liked it because in my experience as an academic who has control of space is like what 90% of the disputes are about. It's amazing. So they were all scattered all over. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And, and,
1: um, as I say, they was as, as scattered, uh, geographically as they were intellectually, right. Uh, the, uh, Henry Murray had his, uh, the psych- psychology clinic in an old house, uh, off campus, uh, um, And uh, Talcott Parsons and Gordon Allport were both in the same building. They were in Emerson Hall, which had housed the philosophy department, and so that was quite a distinguished uh, address uh, for for professors to have. And then Clyde Cluckon was um, he. He he. We're skipping ahead a bit, but he was he. They had started uh, the Russian Research Center, and he was made chairman of the the head of that rather in a very strange uh, sequence of events. So, yeah, they were all over the place, and um, it didn't did not contribute to uh, uh, unification at all.
0: Maybe we should talk a little bit about um, Kluckhohn. And his career, you know, we've we've talked about um, Parsons as an important importer of Max Weber and uh, an influential social theorist. But there are many left critiques of the Department of Social Relations, or maybe not even left, but it it definitely had its enemies. There are many. The Chicago School of Sociology felt like it had been steamrolled by Parsons. Um, Many of the academics who were working there, like Clark Hone, were working for the uh, three-letter agencies in the national security state uh, without maybe – this is David Price's claim, who you cite in the book – without thinking about the difference between working against a declared enemy during World War II versus spying on the people that you're doing fieldwork on – so, and you also mentioned that Murray's focused on interrogations, both finding people to do them and to take them. So there is a there is a sort of a, a dark side about this that I want to make sure that, that we focus on as well. And that Russian research center was taking, was doing covert work at the same time. Tell, tell me a little bit about the relationship between the graduate students who were Uh, getting their degrees in social relations and the Russian research center that Clarkone was at and, and the work that it was doing?
1: Well, to me, this is one of the more fascinating, uh, you know, developments in this whole history, particularly post-World War II is that, um, the, the foreign policy intelligentsia, uh, but particularly the Carnegie Corporation, who had so much money and was so influential um, back then, along with the State Department and the CIA and others, decided we, we didn't. We, the United States, we didn't know anything about the so about the Soviet Union. I mean, it was a closed society. Uh, we, we, you know how how could we get up to speed on our new you know enemy here? And so they decided that they were going to establish and pour a lot of money into uh, an institute to focus on the Soviet Union. And so they started casting around. Well, where are we going to put this institute? Well, let's put it in a university, okay? Well, the logical choice back then would have been Columbia because that's where all the Russian scholars were. But instead, they chose the Harvard Department of Social Relations because. Uh, Charles Dollard, who was at the Carnegie Corporation, had been good friends with Clyde Kluckon and was aware of what Kluckhone and Parsons and others were doing in social relations. They thought this interdisciplinary approach to studying behavior uh, was really an important development. And so they decided, well, we're going to put this Russian research uh, center at Harvard which was somewhat controversial, but even more controversial, they picked an anthropologist to run it, Clyde Kluckong, who knew nothing about Russia. Not, absolutely nothing, no background in it. But He was theory, an
0: expert on Navajo.
1: Yeah, his, his claim to fame was studying, using psych, uh, Freudian psychology to study the dreams of the Navajo Indians. But his other claim to fame was what he did in World War II, studying the Japanese from a distance and making uh, uh, informed guesses about how they would react to certain things. So in a way, the Carnegie Corporation and the, and the State Department and the CIA thought, well, he's the perfect person to run this because that's what we have to do with the Soviet Union because it's a closed society. We can't, you know, we can't just get in there and study things the way we would like. So this really raised a lot of eyebrows uh, in academia, and well through, and throughout the foreign policy uh, world that they chose a cultural anthropologist with no background in Russia to
0: to to
1: be the head of this institute
0: and partially this is because their their logic was if you have the science to do it you don't have to be an area expert you know as long as you have the the science you don't you don't need all of that. I guess what some people would have said is the old fashioned area experts who you know, grew up there or were expatriates from there. It didn't matter. We, If you knew the methods and the techniques, then you could get stuff done scientifically. But there was also, just to highlight in your response, there was like a old boy network factor here. Basically, the guy who was responsible for handing out the money at Carnegie just happened to be good friends with with the people who ended up receiving it, right?
1: Absolutely. And and, and, and in addition to the Russian Research Center, which, which got some money from Carnegie, but it was a social relations department that got even more money from Carnegie to start something they called the Social Relations Laboratory, which was not a laboratory in the conventional sense of test tubes and everything else. But Parsons was so fixated on creating this aura of scientif- scientism around this new department that he called it a laboratory, but it was sort of a sort of a clearinghouse for funding the research that they were undertaking, but he called it a laboratory. And the Carnegie Corporation gave it uh, huge amounts of money. Uh, and, and then, of course, they also gave money to the Russell Research uh, Center but the, the Russian Research Center also got money from directly from the U.S. government, from the CIA, uh, as a matter of fact.
0: And there were other institutions. So as an anthropologist myself, I know Clifford Yeertz is one of the most famous anthropologists. And um, his research was funded in some way by uh, defense, by intelligence agencies, or he was part of a... A project that had a defense agency side for it to it as well. So this is um, this was something that continued on in Harvard, not just in the Russian area, but I guess that was the oh, if I remember correctly, the Mojikudo project, which was directed by Doug Oliver, or something like that. So um, so the, the, the that those resources were everywhere around there. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And as a David, the wonderful book by David Price, who really gets into the this sort of Cold War scholarship, and, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, he details some of this, but uh, Clifford Geertz was one of the star products of social relations. I mean, mm-hmm. he's got his PhD there, and he studied with both Claquon and Parsons, and I quote him uh, in several places in the book, because he, he, he looks back on what he called the golden years of social relations in that, those first five years, and he talks about the, you know, the wonderful exuberance, but also the kind of the crazy. I think he used the word academic roller coaster ride for graduate students. But uh, yeah, he was one of the one of the star uh, pupils of Cluckon and 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 Parsons.
0: And, and um, in, one of the other strange things—I don't know if you're aware of this or not—but uh, one of the other strange. Uh, lines out of the social relations department is that many of the people who became involved in post what they called in the 80s postmodern anthropology were people who had gone to Socrel and to do their PhDs. And then a lot of their sort of more postmodern work was a reaction against the kind of scientific rigor that they established there. So if if people go and read some of the early works of you know um, uh, George Marcus or other people like that. Sometimes it's hard to tell who it is that they're arguing with. If you if you come from an anthropological tradition that's more humanistic, but they're they're arguing with social relations. And so uh, oftentimes these this Cold Warrior program didn't just produce Cold Warriors. It also it also produced a backlash, which which is of course I mean talk about backlash. The the final section of your book documents. Um, the rise of the counterculture and, and its relationship to social relations. Uh, you want to tell us a, a little bit about that?
1: Um, yes, yes, yeah, certainly.
0: Um, or, or return to anything. I'm sorry, I don't mean to to move too quickly. If you want to comment on something I've just said or something like that.
1: No, no. the uh, the um, the The other person I was going to mention in terms of this the backlash uh, was even within the department itself. There was a professor of of psychology, he, had, he received his PhD from the original uh, Department of Psychology at Harvard, a guy named Jerome Bruner. Mm-hmm. And Bruner, very early on, was very unhappy with what was going on at Harvard. Uh, because he, although he joined social relations, because he thought, he, he sort of believed in that vision. He became unhappy very quickly because he said it doesn't make any sense to have two different kinds of psychologists. This is very harmful to the discipline. And he said, "You got the psychologists like B. F. Skinner studying rats and Carl Ashley studying animals, and not focusing on you know uh, uh, the interior mind." And then in social relations, you've got Henry Murray studying abnormal psychology, and there's nobody just studying how, how people think, how the average person thinks, how do they learn? So he, he sort of broke away, he stayed in the department, but he established the cognitive, uh, 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 I think it was called the Cognitive Research Institute. And he got a lot of money, grant money to do this. So he he sort of broke away and 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 really created what's known in psychology as the cognitive revolution to sort of as a backlash to what was going on at Harvard to study well how do normal quote normal people think and learn because that was missing so I just want to add that when you bring up these reactions to what was going on in social relations and and creating sort of new you know fields or sub disciplines or, or whatever that that was a very uh, you know a very important one
0: um, yeah thank you so much for adding that it, it's true uh, ironically a lot of work did come out of social relations that was very synthetic and interdisciplinary like like Bruner's, and very influential Bruner is read by anthropologists and many other people i mean it's just uh, his work is excellent and it's accessible and it makes sense to, to many different people wearing many different hats um, but it wasn't the kind of interdisciplinarity that I think some people might have anticipated they would have had. Parsons Parsons wanted a system. Uh, I, that's my impression. Whereas many of the interdisciplinary thinkers, like Riesman and others, they they were um, or Bruner. It was their willingness to experiment with new things without boundaries that w- proved so fertile. Rather than I think what Parsons thought, which was we're just going to create you know a Euclidean geometry for the social, and it's going to be nothing but rules and procedures, and then that would be what good interdisciplinarity is.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good a good uh, kind of summary of what was was, ta- was taking place. I mean, uh, and and I feel somewhat sorry for Talcott Parsons because. Uh, he didn't have many, he was sort of dragging along the department in that direction. And he didn't have really many supporters, even the fellow levelers, you know, kind of dropped off uh, and were doing their own thing, you know, just as they always had. And they were not that interested in creating this uh, uh, overarching, you know, social theory of, of behavior. So he was kind of on his own and uh, they tried to write this book. Uh, uh, called toward a general theory of action. And they got a lot of money, again, from the Carnegie Corporation. And uh, so that was in 1951 because Parsons realized they had no theory. They created this department, but they had no theory. So they tried to catch up. And it was a bit, you know, putting the, the – the, uh, uh, they had the cart before the horse, so to speak. So they, they got this money from Carnegie and they spent a lot of time writing this book, which was a failure. Um, and it was really just Parsons kind of all alone trying to,
0: you know, drag the department in that direction. Yeah, it's funny. I, I often wonder uh, whether they would have been more successful if they had less resources and, and had, had to make do and, uh, or had to be held to account a little bit more. It, there was just so much money sloshing around. People didn't have to worry about what their official story was or, or working with others in a situation of scarce resources. Uh, it, it's funny. It's funny how these things work.
1: Well, you, you you really touched on something important there because the social relations laboratory, which was sort of the clearinghouse for channeling the money to the different research It had no, there was no research program. I mean, there was no, it just kind of went wherever, you know, they, you know, kind of whoever wanted the money, there was no uh, overarching intent to try to focus the research at all. There was no research program. And in fact, Reisman, when he arrived in the mid 50s, he was sort of shocked because he had always heard about, oh, this laboratory and they have all this money. And then he got there and he said, hey, there's nothing here. I mean, there's a lot of money here, but there's no there's no overarching program. So he was really um, critical of this laboratory uh, and it it didn't build any kind of, you know, uh, uh,
0: uh, towards towards anything. So. Well, this this is uh, good news for those of us at cash-strapped public universities. Just goes to show you can be small but mighty, and sometimes uh, sometimes that's what you need. It's just that uh, good things can grow out of less resources. That's the lesson that I take from that as someone who does not work at Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you have
1: to be more creative, and uh, uh, yeah, absolutely.
0: So I do want to make sure that uh, we wrap up this story without. Going too much longer, uh, and I want to I want to mention this final section where we talk about student unrest because once again your research here was was very very good. You tracked down individual articles in the newspaper, and you tracked the individual trajectories and histories of these students, um, and you ultimately show that uh, social relations. Well, you can tell me. I was going to say that it's the student unrest and faculty experimentation with psychedelics dealt the death blow to the department. But maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. Can you tell me the story about the turbulent 1960s in social relations?
1: Well, you're you're right. And that's really what I was trying to say in the book, that the department, although it had all these superstars, there's no doubt about it, they had all these superstars, they had a lot of money, but There was no there there in terms of a a, a theory that was creating a new science or even creating a new department or new discipline. Uh, Nobody else in academia followed Harvard's example. They were out there all alone. So you had this kind of shaky edifice already. And then in 1959, Timothy Leary arrives at Harvard and he joins the social relations department as a clinical psychologist interested in studying um, people, you know, in real life situations, uh, how to be helpful. It wasn't sort of some abstract research. Uh, he was interested in, in, you know, personality psychology, abnormal psychology, how you, how you help people in a clinical sense. And he was a mainstream psychologist when he joined Harvard. And, but the, (laughs) The first summer after he joined, he went to Mexico and he tried the magic mushroom for the first time. And that just, he he said that was a religious experience. Uh, he was convinced that this was going to change the world, certainly change psychology and and, and in terms of how to help people. And then he found a, a colleague at Harvard, a like-minded colleague, a guy named Richard Alpert, who later became famous as Ram Das. Uh, a spiritual leader, but the two of them at Harvard, you know, became a, a, a duo and they decided they were going to focus on, um, on uh, research using psilocybin. So they, they, this was sort of the fall semester. They immediately set about the three different experiments. I, I say experiments, but they were pretty loosely uh, structured uh, and not very, very scientific but um, uh, they were – and I should back up that Timothy Leary was able to get a huge supply of the synthesized uh, drug from magic mushrooms, the psilocybin. He was able to get that from Sandoz, the drug company. Um, they just like
0: got, shipped it to him. No one, yeah, no one thought yeah, anything really, about it.
1: <laughs> yeah, he, 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 he had a Harvard stationery. And uh, the Department of Social Relations, he wrote a letter saying, hey, I'm doing some research on psilocybin. I'd like to have some. And they said, certainly, here's a huge supply and, and uh, let us know how it goes. I mean, it was pretty, <laughs> pretty unscientific exchange. So he had the supply. And what he and Albert did in these three different experiments, uh, one, they would just give students the, the drugs and have them write about their experience. Then they would they did a at Andover a Seminary, they did the uh, uh, they would give these students um, psilocybin, hoping to induce a religious experience. With these, these are people seminars. who are
0: planning to be ministers. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. And then they, then the they did an experiment at the Concord Prison, where they gave the psilocybin to inmates, and uh, and they were ostensibly trying to track if this would reduce recidivism. And Leary claimed he had great success, but there's, it's, there's not really, I, I, there doesn't seem to be much documentation that that was successful. So they had these three experiments going on. The, the one that caused Harvard the most, the administration, the most heartburn was giving the drugs to the students. Because Leary and Alpert weren't doctors, and this clearly had an effect on, you know, your mind. And um, Harvard at that time was just kind of waking up. This was now 1960. Uh, Other drugs were around. Students were experimenting. And um, this was a big problem for Harvard. Huge debate and fight. Uh, Leary and Alpert said, uh, hey, academic freedom, we can do the research we want to do it. You you can't tell us anything. Uh, besides, this is the University of William James, who famously experimented with uh, nitrous oxide, and uh, we're it's perfectly fitting that it be done here. Harvard said, "Listen, these are undergrads. We have a, we have a responsibility for their physical well-being, and uh, you have to stop." So this went back and forth and back and forth and. Uh, huge debates within the department, and um, then it it um, it got in the public domain, uh, and there were some articles um, in the New York Times started appearing, and Harvard put it you know said delirium okay you can you can no longer give the drugs to undergraduates, and Albert violated that. He gave it to an uh, undergraduate friend of his, a guy named Ronnie Winston, who happened to be the son of the jeweler, Harry Winston, the famous jeweler. Um, and so he was fired for that. Al, uh, Leary was not fired. He just stopped showing up. So it's sort of in line with his, his, uh, his saying, uh, uh, turn on, tune in and drop out. He just stopped showing up. So they, they took his name off the, the payroll, but so they were gone. But what happened was, and I say in the book, I think this incident really kickstarted in a way the counterculture, you know, the drug culture uh, in the early sixties, because the, the United States in general society was not aware of psychedelic drugs. It was sort of limited to some college campuses, but there was an article in the New York Times uh, there is a huge article in Life magazine um, written by a Harvard undergrad, Andrew Weil, um, and then Saturday Evening Post and others. So all of a sudden, this scandal was out there and linking social relations department with the drug counterculture and, uh, you know, sort of educating uh, the rest of America to what was going on in these campuses.
0: And for people who aren't of the 60s generation, Timothy Leary and Ram Dass are, are iconic figures. I mean, they're they're symbols, not just of the psychedelic movement, but really of the 60s as a whole, I think, right? I mean, these are people who, if, if you ask anyone who was young in that period, everyone would instantly know. It'd be like asking about JFK or something like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were big and... Uh, 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 Timothy Leary was uh, was on his way to becoming this guru of the of the counterculture. Richard Nixon identified him as the most dangerous man in America, and and that, that is what led Nixon to push this legislation, uh, which was the uh, uh, Controlled Substance, Substances Act in 1970, which prohibited all research in psychedelic drugs because. It wasn't illegal what Leary was doing. I mean, it wasn't illegal. Psilocybin wasn't illegal, you know. Um, and then Nixon, uh, and that stopped all the research. And it's it's somewhat ironic that now, in well, last spring in twenty twenty two, Harvard started researching psilocybin again at the medical school. So I think Leary would be uh, uh, some wherever he is, he would be kind of chuckling about the uh, Harvard coming around to uh, uh, acknowledging the, uh, the important potential of uh, psilocybin, although it's being done at the medical school <laughs> with uh, doctors, uh, you know, highly uh, uh, sort of regulated. But nonetheless, I think he would find it funny. And then Ram Das wrote the very bestseller called um, Be Here Now, uh, which helped solidify his reputation as a, a spiritual leader.
0: Yeah. And it's amazing at the time they were, you know, today we have very strict human subjects regulations and you have to get, you know, uh, agreement signed to where you give people, you know, prior informed consent of what they're going to do. None of that happened in this. They just uh, gave people drugs, psychedelic drugs, and then asked whether they saw God afterwards. It's remarkable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the, the other, the other big, uh, I guess, failing or, or when you mentioned informed consent, Henry Murray had done some experiments in the late 1950s that were based on the, exper- the the work he was doing in World War II for the CIA and the OSS, which was how do you break down spies? Well, he was continuing to do that type of research at Harvard, but he was doing it on undergraduates.
0: Right. I mean, it sounds like uh, he was basically interrogating undergraduates to see if he could break them.
1: Yes, yes. And he, and one of those students was a very young, um, uh, a sort of socially awkward student. Had some brilliant. He got in when he was 16 years old. And uh, that student was Ted Kaczynski.
0: The Unabomber.
1: Yeah. So for three years, Henry Murray did this uh, uh, excruciating uh, – um, uh, traumatizing, uh, experiment on Ted Kaczynski and, and Ted Kaczynski, and, go ahead, go ahead. And Ted Kaczynski, when he was apprehended and he was talking about this in preparation for his trial, and he said that was, the, uh, that was the worst experience of his life.
0: My goodness. And Murray, uh, also had some sort of, uh, weird kinky BDSM relationship with someone or, or he wrote a book about that. Well, there was a biography of his,
1: uh, a biography that was written with his consent. Uh, It came out after he died. Uh, And it basically explained or described what people at Harvard sort of knew, is that he had been having this sadomasochistic relationship with a woman, not his wife, for about 20 years. And... Uh, yeah, it was um, you know uh, a, a quite a, a revelation, and some people suspected that this sadomasochistic uh, uh, outlook of his or tendency played a role in his like his his um, pursuit of these experiments, where he was you know interrogating people and traumatizing them they they people speculate it was all of a piece
0: it just sounds like a nightmare and there was Uh, no
1: and speaking of informed consent murray because kaczynski was only 17 so he murray had to get consent from from kaczynski's mother but he didn't tell his mother what the experiment was about he just said this is an experiment to help us understand man man better and uh, help, you know, help the future generations. So he didn't explain the trauma, 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 traumatizing aspect of, of the experiment. And the, the mother is, I have a quote from her, and they were asking, well, why did you give this consent? And she said, well, I thought these, I knew that, uh, I, I knew that Teddy had issues adjusting. And I thought these nice psychologists at Harvard might help him.
0: Yeah, people had more trust in institutions back then. Yeah, um, yeah. Very, yeah. Maybe it's sad. a good thing that we we don't today. Uh, yeah, it's a. It was a different time. It was a. It was a different place as well. Uh, you know, not not every place is Harvard, which has the kind of reputation where people would think, oh, you know, my son went to Harvard, so everyone there must be the top, and uh, and must always be acting with the greatest of uh, propriety. Can you tell me about um, the student activism as well? That's yes, the other uh, prong of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that um, um, started in 19, in the fall of 1968. There was a group of radical students, uh, some of whom were in the, as students for democratic society, which at that time was the largest uh, radical student group in the United States. And they were a leader and fomenting the sort of uh, protest and unrest on campuses uh, against, principally against the Vietnam War. Um, And uh, this this group convinced an anthropology professor at Harvard, a young one, to sponsor this new course that was going to provide a radical critique of American society. And it sort of, uh, it, it sailed through um, in terms of approval because, you know, Harvard, you know, uh, on the face of it, that doesn't sound too alarming. Yeah, okay, you take this perspective and look at American society. There were, sociology was a part of the department. It, it sort of made some sense. But, of course, they didn't know that the SDS was involved. And when the the, the class was, it was called um uh, Social Relations 148 uh, was in the fall, and the course was a, a very popular, and it had very um, uh, lax, shall I say, uh, requirements. Uh, rumors starting floating around that they weren't going to they were going to get grades randomly to people. They weren't going to require any exams or papers everybody was going to get an a uh, it, you know the reading list in some in some sections because it was so big that they had sections weekly sections with teaching uh, assistants and the teaching assistants were f- from the SDS and so, and sometimes they were people that had no connection to Harvard whatsoever which was a violation of the of the Harvard corporation rules back then um, so this was <laughs> The, the president of Harvard saw a poster for the course and he said, "What? what is this course about? Is this a joke? Is this a parody? What, what is going on here? But the course was already off and running. So the administration couldn't really stop it. And but they were the professors were very upset uh, that this sort of joke of a course was was taking place. Not a joke in every section. I mean, some of the reading lists had. Had you know, uh, legitimate uh, uh, books and articles on it, but for the most part, it was it was kind of a farce. And um, well, but there was a second semester to it, Social Relations One Forty Nine. By then, the reputation had been built up, so the department, the it became the largest course at Harvard, over eight hundred students, and it's it's even credited with uh, priming the pump in the sense of it wanted to be a the the, the organizers wanted it to be a bridge to get harvard students who were le- leaning left but they were sort of a- apathetic they weren't active and they wanted to make a bridge to get them to be active in terms of the protest and they succeeded in that because in the April of 1969, there was a famous uh, student takeover of the administration building at Harvard. Uh, And they, they held the building until 400 uh, national guard were called to haul them out. And uh, 13 of the students arrested were section leaders in this course, as well as the professor who sponsored it. So it it clearly had a, played a role in making the students more active. But this was the final straw for the administration in terms of this department. They just thought it was out of control. Uh, you know, and it, it, for many it was it also divided the faculty among the more liberal faculty again and the more conservative ones who, who just were stop stopped talking to each other. Um, there was there was such division.
0: So I guess at that point, there weren't a lot of people who were invested in the department itself. They, it had been sort of fragmented ideologically. Um, that course, that, you, as you say in the book, the social relations offerings for undergraduates had had always sort of been considered to be very lightweight. And, and now they appear to have de- be degenerated further. And then you have these other people. Murray's, I think, misbehavior was not discovered until later but but um, uh, Ram Das and Timothy Leary they had created waves and so then I guess it just got to a certain point where people wanted to shut it down and and no one wanted to to stand up and save it
1: yeah that's true and then the other the other um, factor that's important is that the newer uh, uh, faculty members at Harvard they had no interest no the first of all they had no memory of why the department was founded you know what the mission original mission was they could care less i mean they you know as a young as a young scholar i mean you can appreciate this they wanted to be a successful psychologist a successful anthropologist. they didn't want to be a successful social relationist that was not the way to get ahead in your career so for them they just thought this was a strange uh, department very cumbersome because you had f- basically what had what had happened is the subdisciplines had become mini departments and, and then there was a great a bigger department social relations on top of them so if you were a cult- if you were an anthropologist or you were a social psychologist you had no direct relationship with the dean you had to go through this vehicle of social relations. And so each of the sub felt that they weren't getting enough uh, hires, uh, enough space, enough anything. So you had this all this academic politics and administrative problems uh, on top of a an academic venture that lacked any unifying theory. And then you had these black eyes like Sacrelle 148, 149, the Leary Alpert incident, uh, and you put all this together. And, and finally in 72, it, uh, it, it fell apart.
0: Yeah. So looking back on it now, um, when you interview people, do people feel like it was a success or a failure? How do the people who are involved with the department look back on it and, and remember it today?
1: Well, in, in terms of the uh, – and I've talked to some graduate students as well who are, who are around um, as well as recalling my conversations with the professors in the department. Um, but I, I would say overall people have to acknowledge that it was a failure. I mean there, there is no discipline of social relations. There's no science of of social relations. So uh, the book that they created toward a general theory of action was a failure. So you can't help but conclude that the, the, the venture failed in that sense. But I'm always very fair in saying, look, this was a department of superstars. They still individually did incredibly important work. You know, David Reisman, Talcott Parsons, Gordon Allport, Jerome Bruner, David McClellan, you know, are on and on and on, you know, s- stars in their field. In addition, they produced superstars. You mentioned Clifford Geertz. I mean, that's one. Um, and a number of sociologists. Uh, 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 there's um you know, at, at, at Harvard, at the graduate Kennedy uh, uh, Graduate School right now, there's a, a psychologist, Howard Gardner, who is very much a sort of interdisciplinary in his approach. Uh, he writes about multiple intelligences. He, he brings in uh, sociology a bit, anthropology and into his work. So there, there still has some, you know, ongoing um, uh, effects on the academy so it's not a it's not a failure in a total sense but it was a failure in the original mission statement yeah
0: well and i suppose to a certain extent what was the likelihood that you know this was going to utterly succeed and transform the discipline i think whenever people have these grand visions oftentimes the thing that lasts and that's important is not the realization of the grand vision but all of the energy that went into it this sort of thing
1: yeah i mean it was a, 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 a no matter how you look at it it was a, a extremely interesting department did good work um and uh, i don't think anybody should feel you know uh, uh sad that, that they participated in it um at all
0: so yeah well, you know, th- thanks so much. Uh, not boring. Social relations. The story of social relations is not a boring story, uh, and uh, the book that you have is also uh, not at all uh, boring. It's a it's a wonderful and vivid story about a, a really exciting time. So thanks thanks so much for writing this book. Uh, I want to let you go. I could I could gossip with you for a lot longer, but I I know that we're running up to time, so I want to let you go. Before I let you go, can you tell me uh, what else you're going to be doing or thinking about or publishing now that this book is published? Is this something that's still of interest to you that you're going to pursue? Well, I, I'm, I'm, giving, I'm
1: giving it some time before I, I, I come up with a new uh, topic to investigate in this, this area. Um, so for now I don't have any plans to do any more research in the, in the area of, uh, you know, uh, the, the social sciences.
0: I wonder whether there's a Reisman biography. If there, if there isn't, we need one.
1: Well, yeah, I, i there was somebody that was started one that I read about and then I could, I think he must've dropped it because I could never, I never found out anything more about it, but people continue to write about him. I'm, I'm reading this wonderful book uh, by Louis Manand at Harvard uh, uh, called uh, The Free World. And he's talking right. about the post-World War II uh, Cold war period, and this explosion in art and social sciences and all over. And he spends about seven pages on David Reisman. So I, I just started reading that. I was very uh, heartened to, to see that, that people are still, still talking about him and his contributions.
0: Well, thanks again for taking the time to write the book. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank
1: you. Thank you for having me. I, I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Once again, for all of our listeners, that was Patrick L. Schmidt, the author of Harvard's Quixotic Pursuit of a New Science, The Rise and Fall of the Department of Social Relations. And you can find that uh, published by Roman and Littlefield in 2022. I'm Alex Golub. I hope you all have a good day. Take care.